tonight on Arena. Ken Loach talks to us about his new film, The Old Oak, and we have new albums from Kylie, Wilco and The National up for review. Delighted to be joined now on Arena by one of the most acclaimed directors in British cinema. Ken Loach has been making films for over 50 years. He's won two Palme d'Or for at Cannes. His films are renowned for the political commentary and gritty realism. And The Old Oak, his latest release, is no exception. It's Ken's 20th feature, powerful and topical story about the challenges and hopes of two very different communities in a former mining town in County Durham. It centres on The Old Oak landlord TJ and his relationship with a young Syrian refugee Yara and how the town reacts to the arrival of the Syrians I, I, I was saying Ken when I saw the, the the topic and the theme of the film wow mm. to, to be that on in the moment in terms of what's happening not just in Britain but around the world it, was it something that you wanted to tackle the, the refugee crisis and how it's dealt with in various countries was that important to you for some time? Um, well the starting point was the uh, with the old mining villages in County Durham um, because we, we'd done two films in, in the North East and um, uh, d- different aspects of the way mm. uh, the society is fragmenting and and failing people, and um, or rather the, the the government is failing, the state is failing people, and um, one of the elements there that that, that had really struck us were, were the, the the consequences of the deindustrialization that's gone on throughout the country, in steel, shipbuilding, mining, you know, all the old traditional industries, um, and uh, they went, and nothing was put in its place, so the communities have been left to rot. Um, the, the the ex-mining villages in County Durham are, are the the image of that because it's it's one coherent was one coherent community built around the mine usually in countryside so when the mine went then everything has gone and um, schools churches have closed the, the church halls are therefore gone um, of the libraries have gone um, the infrastructure has gone and how, what's happened to the people? How do they cope? And that, that was one mm. element. The old tradition of solidarity remains from the mining industry, but also the despair and the the alienation and the cynicism and the bitterness and the anger that makes people are, are vulnerable to the propaganda of the far right. And we wondered how to tell this story or to find a story in it. And then Paul Lavity, the writer, heard, heard of the refugee families from the war in Syria, and and that area in that northeast had more refugees per capita than anywhere else in the land. Bizarrely, mm. with nothing, people with nothing, you know. Um, and then um, the refugees arrived, and of course, some of them will sink into we don't want foreigners, we've got nothing. Why us? And that can lead to obviously can lead to hostility, can lead to racism, and lead to conflict. And also the story of, or indicate, because we can't tell that whole story, indicate the the trauma of fleeing war. 
as well from the refugee from the the Syrian. Yeah, they they are two very powerful stories, and the way they intersect with each other in the old oak is very different. I want to listen to a clip from a conversation in the pub. The old oak is the local pub. TJ, played by Dave Turner, is the landlord. And as you said, there, there are a, a bundle of, in this case, a, a group of men that we're going to hear chatting away in the corner of the pub. A lot of them suffering from the the after effects of the, the the loss of the mining villages, the loss of their livelihood. I think we'll hear Chris McGlade, Jordan Lewis and Col Tate in this clip. And need to warn you, there's a little language involved in what they're saying here. They've been bought online right, on an auction. They've never been to the village to have a look at the houses. They've never walked round the street. Our streets in our village, you know. Uh, Bought by some speculating greedy bastard who'll rent them out to some fucking moron. Mm -hmm. They're fucking parasites. They are. All they do, they don't even come to the village, they don't even come to the street, they don't even see the fucking houses they're buying. Now you heard this. They're advertising homes for rent in my street, right? In Durham fucking prison. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. They're shitting on them, man. They're shitting on them. I'm telling you. Remember a few years ago when Mary was first diagnosed and we were thinking about selling up and moving so we could be closer to her sister? Yeah. Well, we, we hummed and hard for a bit, like, didn't know what to do, but we got the house valued. It was worth about 50 grand, a bit more than we paid for, so that was all right. Do you know how much? Do you know how much that company in Cyprus paid for them houses? Go on. Eight grand each. Fuck, for fuck's sake. I mean, where's grand? Eight grand? <laughs> I mean, Mary, Mary can't take it anymore, man, with that dick next door, but we're just trapped there. This has now become a dumping ground, lads. You're right. Land losses, dumping ground. Ah, you're right there. Them people that are buying the places, they're not bothered, they're not doing the houses up. No. And the people who are moving in, well, they're not, it's not their property at the end of the day. Oh, they're not doing them up. Oh, they're just being left to wreck and ruin. I just oh, don't know what to say. I mean, me and Mary, we, we've been in this village all our lives. I know you. You know, is this going to be it? Like the rest of our lives are living... A clip there from the old oak and director Ken Loach is with me on Arena this evening. You, you said something interesting just before, as we were heading into that clip about the vulnerability of people to the propaganda of the far right. Is is that yeah. what these... Because it's easy to demonise those men and the things that they're saying in, in the pub there. But I, I think you wanted to give some kind of uh, empathy, if that's the right word, to, what, uh, to how they felt. Well, their grievances are legitimate. Um, they've been abandoned by um, successive governments, uh, Tory and Blair Brown's new Labour. They did nothing. No, no uh, government investment, no attempt to um, to transform the, the, those communities because they were brilliantly strong communities. They they were politically strong as well, and of course that's why Fatty destroyed them. And it, it's a clear example of where the market fails people. And of course, the, the it can turn it can turn very quickly into um, say anger, bitterness, uh, resentment. And then finding a scapegoat. That's all that what happens. You find a scapegoat. And uh, as, as TJ says in the film, you, you look down, you know, you stamp on the faces below you. you. We need to look up, see who's really exploiting and, and destroying 
the world because the health service isn't collapsing because a few people are coming across the channel in boats. And Dave Turner, though, as the and, and he's not the only person in the film. Dave as as T J Ballantyne, who's the landlord of the old oak, this pub. Yeah. He seems to have avoided that propaganda. He seems to have avoided being pulled into uh, looking down on people, as do a number of others in the community. How does that happen, that some people manage to hold on to their, I suppose, their sense of humanity and their sense of community when others just lose it? Well, I think that you find that everywhere. Um, and, and particularly, that's one of the elements of the story. The, the, the people in the village... Uh, the, inherit this the tradition of solidarity of the miners. I mean, during the great strike of 84, 85, miners and their wives traveled the world. You know, they spoke at great public meetings across Europe and um, people had never been out of the village before. And there's across a, a long history of miners and their, their struggle for a decent wage, for safety, for, uh, for dignified life, based on solidarity. I mean, you depend on the man next to you for your life. Mm. You know? So, so that that tradition is very was very strong, and of course, of course, it's still there. So, in the sense of the struggle within the within the that community, for which which is the dominant consciousness. The, the the other aspect then of the story that comes in to intersect, as they say, with that dying mining village story, which you were keen to tell. The other aspect that comes in is this group of Syrian refugees and particularly one family where with a, a young woman called Yara, uh, played yeah. by Ebla Mari, who is a photographer, has big interest in, in photography, and she has yeah. her camera with her. She's immediately attracted to pictures in the old oak pictures of miners and, and particularly during the miners strike and uh, there's also yes. some some references to some very unfortunate disasters I think within those pictures there was one quote that really stuck with me um, and, and it's a picture that we a photograph that we're looking at, at in and around the time of the miners strike when you eat together you stick together um, and it's yeah. pictures of the, the striking miners families who let's face it had little or no money at the time, they weren't working and they had nothing to, to live on. So the whole idea was the community came together and, and ate together. How important yes. was that for that community? And again, it becomes a big part of the, the interaction between the Syrian community and the, the local community in the film. I think there's, there's always been a long connection between communal eating and, and joining together across a, a table or just sharing food. It's a visible sign of solidarity, of mutual support, of caring for each other. And, and I think that was that's really important. And it's an idea that goes back centuries. Um, and it's a, an idea the Syrian part of their culture as well. You know, when, when someone, someone is um, bereaved, people will take food around. I mean, I think we, we, we do it as well. I mean, it's mm. not a formal tradition, but, but there is that sense of what can I do? I'll do something practical. But when you're, when you're in, a, in a state of crisis, you don't have time to think, well, God, what am I going to have to dinner? But if someone can bring it, it it's, a, it, it's a recognition of need. It's a show of uh, support and um, that there's someone there to stand with you. And, I th- and, and w- when you do it together, it's, that it's your collective strength. So it's it's far more than just oh you know here's yeah. a bag of fish and chips. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, as we see in the film, there are people who really need some food to eat. It's it also has that <laughs> aspect to it. There are those who are who are literally hungry. Uh, your solidarity, I suppose, with these communities in some ways is the films that you have that you have made over the years. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the the, the film set in the north. I, Daniel Blake. Sorry, we missed you. One dealing with the welfare system. One dealing with the gig economy, and so many films across the years. I mean, in our own country here, Jimmy's Hall, of course. I was up in Leitrim last week. You were talking about solidarity there as well, and the wind that shakes the barley. Um, I get no sense from you that either your political energy or your filmmaking energy are waning in any way, Ken? <laughs> oh, well, I'm afraid um, I mean, it's, it's easy enough to talk about it. The, the problem is getting up at six o'clock every morning for a, a, quite a long period and um, and doing it, you know, for 12, 14 hours a day. I mean, I had a rather dodgy fall last week and uh, I'm sitting here with a cracked ribbon and a pulled muscle, so... Um, I think, you know, I have to accept the fact that um, Father Time, you know, passes on and uh, you, you try, try and do what you can do, but there, there comes a limit. It's not something you want to give up uh, willingly, um, I can promise you. Are you even thinking about giving it up willingly? Are, are, there, still, are there still projects, you know, floating around in your head? Uh, there's, there's always projects and, and with Paul as well. But... Um, I think realistically, I, I can't see getting around the course. And that is, you could be involved without being, you know, and I remember reading about you saying about when you were shooting Jimmy's Hall in, in, in Leitrim, you experienced the fine weather that the northwest of Ireland often gets when you were up there. Um, you could still be involved in filmmaking, though, perhaps not as hands on as a director. Um, it's difficult, really, because I think if you're, you know, if your instinct is to direct, then or, you know, that's what you've always done. You, you wouldn't, it's difficult. I mean, the directors need their head. You know, you don't want some old git standing behind you and saying, <laughs> oh, I'd do it that way if I were you. I mean, that, that's destructive because you're struggling for, for a, a vision of what you're doing as you're doing it. And to have someone coming in with suggestions, mm. is that destructive? So, uh, no, I think everyone has to plough their own furrow and, um, you know, work out their work out their, their process as they go um, because it, it is it, filming is the art of the possible you know it's on the day I mean we, we had six weeks the, the last scene you know we started at five o'clock on the last day um, yeah. one of the things that several people have mentioned about the old oak the current film and indeed I noted it myself is the sense of hope actually that is there within it Um is is that something that is is new to you to you, at this point in your life? Do you just think, yes, I, I'm holding on to hope, um, maybe even the hope that there is another film that I can make. No, no, no it's that that's. I think that's always been central to our, our view of the world. I mean, I say our uh, because I mean the you know the writer and producer, and you know because I'm just part of a gang. It's never an individual, but I think that's always been central to our, our view of the world because. With with solidarity, the working class can change the world. You know, the, the strength is there, and the great skill of the ruling class. I mean, it's just it's a conflict between those who sell their labour and those who exploit it, exploit them. And the working class does everything, makes everything, transports everything, sells everything, does everything. 
um, the, the people who, who who get a a large slice of their the value of what they contribute. I mean, that's all they do. They they manipulate the finance. So the working class doesn't need them. They need the working class, and so the working class with solidarity, not divided, not broken into national uh, separation or class. Or se- you know, turning on people within the working class or themselves or whatever, as as racism does. That's why it's, I mean, it's evil in itself, but it has a function for the ruling class, keeps keeps workers divided. That is the hope. Solidarity. The, the working class can, can, can change the world. But it now is particularly important because we've reached us. There's an end game now. I mean, they're destroying the planet, as we know. Um, our society in Britain is, is fragmenting, absolutely collapsing, wherever you look. Um, I mean, who thought we would institutionalise hunger? You know, And yet, yeah, the, the existence of food banks in their thousands is now not a matter of comment, just within a decade. So the, 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 the failure of, of this system to provide lives of dignity and security is, is now so clear and it's, it will, we know we're facing, or are now passing through climate and catastrophe, and that'll lead to mass migration. I mean, what we've seen here is nothing. And, and that's why our Home Secretary is trying to rewrite the Declaration of Human Rights, so that we can just, I mean, her aim is to keep Britain like a walled, a gated community, you know. And so these are critical times, and that's why we have to recognise our strength and that's in solidarity. Ken, wonderful to speak with you today. Thanks so much for being on the programme with us and congratulations uh, on the old oak. Let it not be your last offering to us. Think about another yeah. one, please. Uh, well, you're very kind. All the best and all, all the best to all our friends across the uh, across the Irish Sea. We had good times in Ireland. Ken Loach there and indeed many people had good times with Ken Loach in Ireland too I got that from some of those who were with me on the OB last week the outside broadcast last week from the um, festival in the Manor Hamilton in Leitrim the Adaptations Festival and we were talking about Jimmy's Hall on that particular night but Ken Loach's latest film which is called The Old Oak is released nationwide this very day Based on the true story of a young Irish man's experience of the gay porn industry, This Solution is a new work by Sean Dunn, whose 2018 Dublin theatre festival show Rapids was turned into the if-denominated film How to Tell a Secret. Delighted to have Sean Dunn with me in studio this evening. As I said, Sean, this this has as a basis in truth. There's a true story behind it, which you have then interpreted into this piece of theatre. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you came across the story in the first place and, and how the, the idea for the play came out of that. Yeah, I suppose Ireland is a very small place. <laughs> and with the last project that I was working on, Rapids, that some people have seen, and maybe some people have seen the film adaptation as well, um, that was a big project for the gay community I suppose and I made a lot of connections that way and I got talking to a lot of people post-show and stuff like that and yeah I I became connected with our contributor and over time he shared his experience with me and I just approached him about maybe perhaps making an art project with it. 
you know, you, you refer to this person as our contributor. You, you might explain because that feeds into the way the show is actually w- will happen on stage. Why do you refer to him as our contributor? Well, he's contributed so much of his lived experience mm. and his testimony. So he is our documentary layer. Um, he is the truth from which the fiction and the uh, the entire theatricality, I suppose, springs from. Um, but he's an anonymous contributor, so people don't know who he is. The team don't know who he is. I know who he is. Um, but we do feature his voice as part of the project's composition. But he's kept anonymous and he's kept very protected mm. and he's kind of contributed a lot of his story and his perspective as part of this project. It's not something that he normally talks about. Um, so yeah, we're really, really honoured that he has worked with us, that he's decided that, you know, this is a worthwhile endeavour for him. So we hear the actual person giving these, not only contributing his story, but these voiceover contributions that are part of the show that you will see and hear on stage. But we're not looking at him. We're looking at something else happening on stage, which is in some ways the fictional part of it. A parallel mm. um, is how I would describe it. So to, to describe the set, maybe, I think it's kind of helpful. Yeah. Um, the set is two studios that are joined by a mirror. Um, and in one studio, the front space is a private dance class. And that's kind of our parallel world. And in the back space is a porn studio. Um, so that's the world of our contributor. But slowly and surely over the course of the production, the composition that our composer is creating, which has the interview material that I made in a space like this, in a podcast studio, mm. um, that seeps in. And both worlds kind of eventually start to become one. Yeah, and the the world the world of the dance studio is a young man who had some sort of involvement in dance in the past and is now coming back to dance and and wants to get back into what he was doing when he was younger. Yeah, reconnect with his body as he puts it in the play. Yeah, and that reconnection with the body is interesting because obviously it links directly to the parallel world of the porn industry. Mm-hmm. Um, dance and porn. Were you making connections there in some <laughs> way, or what kind of connections were um, you making? I wanted to find a parallel where you know there was physical work happening that could feel intimate. Perhaps mm. it's a private dance class. There's like a negotiation of terms there. It's work for the teacher. Um, it's an agreement for the student. I wanted to kind of find shifts and kind of tones in between both worlds that could chime rather than draw an exact parallel between mm. dance and porn. Um, but yeah, the, like it, it's a, it's also a useful form in the sense that I didn't want to represent porn too literally. I think people see enough porn, they don't need to go and see it in Dublin Theatre Festival. <laughs> so I wanted to find a way to just have a, make a very, very physical piece of yeah. work. There's a very interesting statement from the contributors part of this voiceover work that we, that we hear where he talks about watching gay porn and coming across it as a, a young enough, um, possibly mm-hmm. as a teenager, I think. And he refers to watching the porn and being in heaven at the time. Maybe tease out a little bit more about, about what was going on in that particular case and the importance of porn for him as a, a kind of learning tool in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting piece. Like, I think often when you are young, queer or gay adolescent, there might be some speculation around your identity. People might be asking questions. People might be using words to describe like certain, you know, licks in your personality, for example. And it can lead to an investigation, I suppose, of yourself quite young. And that investigation for him brought him to porn. Um, And when he was watching porn as a child, you know, he found relief in it he found support in it it was a window to a world that he didn't know existed where like this wasn't a space of ridicule but rather a space of celebration now obviously that's kind of a radical thought for a lot of people because we don't want children (laughs) watching porn and it's important that we have conversations with our young people around porn and porn usage and what porn is it's not real all that kind of stuff 
But it was interesting for me as, you know, the interviewer in that case, I was struck by the fact that, you know, it was a bridge for him. It was a bridge for him towards himself. And then later it came back into his life in a very, very different way. But because, you know, it was part of a kind of secret routine of his, there was a there was a kind of a future ramification of that um, when he when he became older, like a disconnect maybe between porn and real life, um, which we explore a little bit further in the show. But also uh, the, that viewing of porn as a young man, uh, he, 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 there's terrible shame around it for starters mm-hmm. and fear mm-hmm. that, you know, he's doing it in, in on a computer at home. He's mm-hmm. afraid that anybody, any other member of the family can, can come across his searches. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 that aspect of... of the use of porn for a young gay man or a gay woman for that matter, I suppose, who do you go to to ask about sex acts, gay sex acts? That's that's even more difficult to, than going to your parents to ask about heterosexual sex acts, I guess. Yeah, and I guess as well, you know, our contributor is a little bit, is, is, is around my age. So, you know, I think it's, even different nowadays, there is a little bit more representation. There is a little bit more conversation around mm. growing up gay and there's been meaningful work done, you know, in schools and elsewhere around that whole piece. But it is tricky for sure. Like, where do you go? And I think for a lot of young people, you know, they're on their phones, they're on the iPads. They are going to kind of go online and ask the internet questions for us, which is unfortunate. The other thing, you, you talked about contracts in terms of the dance piece that's happening in the studio at the front of the stage for, mm-hmm. for ease of, of description. There's a contract between the young man who's learning the dance again and his dance teacher. Contracts become hugely important when the contributor is telling us about his life in the gay porn industry. Mm-hmm. Was there something particular that you wanted to look about, about the nature of those contracts or any contract? Yeah, I suppose like as a documentary artist, you know, I'm interested in the agreements that we put people under or we hold people to. So for example, with my work, like I try to be extremely flexible with the contributions, with the people. You know, I find different ways of telling the stories so that they don't feel too exposed, so they don't feel vulnerable. And I also try and create a couple of different options that I have in my back pocket in case they change their mind. Um, with porn and with the specific experience that our contributor had with studio porn, changing your mind once it was done wasn't really an option um, because he had signed a contract that said in perpetuity. Um, and that means forever and ever. Mm. <laughs> it means not just my lifetime, it also means your lifetime and all lifetimes. So there's very little wiggle room when you've signed a contract like that or it feels as though anyway, there is very little wiggle room. And um, I was struck by that and I thought that it was probably, you know, not a very ethical way to go about your work. So that was something that I wanted to draw attention to because I related to it in some ways with regards to my own practice. But because I think in our relationships as well, we all have terms, we all have ways that we want to work, we all have ways that we want to be treated and our terms are always negotiable. Mm. (laughs) You know, they change. Over time, I can change my mind about how I want this relationship to work, how I want this interview to go. That kind of flexibility is something that I was really interested in teasing now in this kind of narrative world that we're developing. And the frightening thing for the contributor is, as you said, there is no flexibility. The contract mm-hmm. is signed and therefore the images belong to mm-hmm. the, the camera person and the camera person is, is referred to several times as being blameless in this in this particular relationship but uh, as as time goes on it's not just getting out of the contract it's the ramifications of that material being available to everybody who knows this young Mm -hmm. man and will recognise him in these films yeah absolutely and I think that's again something I was really struck by obviously like Irish people 
it's not a common practice for Irish people to go and do studio porn. There are very few performers who have done studio porn and I'm sure the perspectives and the experiences are very different for each person. Things are different for each performer, but I was struck by the fact that our contributor, you know, was shamed. Like he was treated really, really badly. People were, you know, sending him pictures of himself, like abusing him with his own image. And I thought that that was just said a lot about us. Like mm-hmm. it didn't really say too much to me about porn and how porn works. It said a lot to me around how Irish people respond, respond to people like this in their community. Um, and I wanted to kind of like address that and challenge it in some way as part of our project. You say that uh, on stage we have uh, we have the dance studio that happening. We have the contributor's voice as part of the overall composition of the story, and then at the back, uh, the, effectively a recreation of a porn studio. Obviously, in that recreation, you have to be believable, and there has to be some kind of authenticity in it. But I suppose uh, you also had to take into account the explicit nature of the material that you want might want to represent. How have you struck that balance? So I'm working with a choreographer called Jessie Thompson um, and she's been building really interesting imagery that's maybe suggestive, that's maybe kind of endurance based, that creates an adrenaline and a sense of friction and a sense of body in motion and a body in action that's not necessarily the same as, you know, watching a naked body trying to simulate the sex scene. Um, And I was interested in that challenge, you know what I mean? Because I think often in theatre, especially like, you do a lot of imagining yourself and your imagination can do a bit of work in theatre. They're not necessarily always looking to be spoon-fed. So I was happy to kind of try and find alternative modes. But at the same time, we are always kind of having that conversation where it's like, all right, it still needs to feel like it has some teeth. It still needs to feel like there's a grit and um, Mm. a reality to it, even if we are using physical language that is not completely um, literal. And it did strike me as I read the script that you really need to see this. You will need to see what's happening on stage and sense the the energy of the dance as much as listen to the words. Yeah, I think so. We're trying to really create like lots of parallels and lots of things happening at the same time. Like obviously the internet is a very, very busy place <laughs> where, you know, you've got your 20 tabs open or whatever and you're flicking between all of them. So our piece is definitely, it's multi-formal. There's a live camera. There's like really interesting composition. Our composer is a DJ um, normally, so it has that energy of a nightclub. Um, so I'm excited to see how people focus. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I'm excited to see it myself and see how it all turns out on stage. Thanks for coming in to tell us about it. That's uh, Sean Dunn and Sean's new work. This solution will be on at the project from the 11th through until the 15th of October. It's at the Space Upstairs in the Project Arts Centre and then at the Mermaid Arts Centre on October the 7th. Dublin Theatre Festival .ie for full details. And so we're into the final lap of Friday evening and our album reviews. First up, we'll have Kylie Minogue's 16th studio album, Tension Explores the Realms of Electropop, while setting the stage for her upcoming Las Vegas residency. Second will be The National's latest album, a surprise release that was announced only days before we actually got it. The album was mostly written and recorded alongside the band's earlier 2023 album, First Two Pages of Frankenstein. And finally, we'll delve into Wilco and their 13th studio album. It's called Cousin, was produced by Kate LeBon, representing the first time the band used an outside producer in over a decade. With me in studio this evening, Brian Boyd and Andrea Cleary. Um, We'll start with Kylie. Opening track from Tension was the huge summer hit. And in case you're living under a stone during the summer, this is what it sounded like. (laughs) 
That's the way your heart goes, seemingly. Uh, that is the, the big summer hit for Kylie Minogue and one of the tracks on her new album, Tension. That track went viral, Brian, over the summer. What's the impact of the track on the album and what does it, what does it tell us about Kylie's career? Or what, how does it comment on Kylie's career as a whole? But it doesn't really, because her songs are written for her. And the songs are produced by other people, and literally, and you you know you go through the stuff and you go, yeah, that's very nice, that's very nice, and you sort of, sort of think, well, any any half decent female vocalist could have released this album. There's a very cynical undertow here, which is that she's starting yeah. a Kylie starting a residency in Las Vegas in November, which is sold out for six months. It probably could run for. Celine Dion two and three years, and even she's even like she, she's crowbarred a song about Las Vegas onto this album. So I, the thing about Kylie is it's very difficult to judge the songs in isolation as we're doing now right. because the context with Kylie is you have to see them in, in terms of a live arena and for the Vegas residency she's recreating Studio 54 in New York. But Kylie's songs work when she has the backing right. dancers, when she has the light show. So they're part of a show. She, yeah. So yeah, but I, judge, I, I, judging them just as songs, I'm going, yes, they're very well put together. But of course, they're very well put together because she's the six best producers in the world okay. and the six best songwriters in the world. So there's no heart, there's no soul to is, it. Uh, is Brian being a little bit harsh there, might I suggest, when he says that any female vocalist could do this? Um, surely there's nobody who could match Kylie in the sheer charm stakes apart from anything else. I think it's a, I don't want to use the word misunderstanding, Brian, but I mean, a, a kind of a willful misunderstanding of what the joy of pop is. The joy of pop is getting the six best producers and the best songwriters and everybody in and giving them to somebody. Kylie's job here isn't to tell us about her life or reflect on her career or anything like that. It's to just be Kylie and just be fun. And I don't think Padam, I, I, I mean, I think Padam was probably chosen. I was watching her in the BBC, uh, the BBC Radio 2 um, festival that she did uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I was looking at her singing Padam and wondering, you know, like, why this song? Like, what is what was it about this song that, that kind of brought her back? And I think it's literally just because a song as good as this didn't pass mm. her desk until Padam. And when Padam came, she snatched it up. And that's what's great about Kylie. She doesn't take just anything that people give her. She takes the best stuff. And that's why she's had two successful comebacks, one in the 2000s and now. Yeah, all right. Let's have a listen to a track a little bit further down the playlist. Oliver Hedlund is involved in this collaboration with Kylie uh, and the song called 10 Out of 10. Oh, yeah, better open that one. Good. 
10 out of 10, Brian. A 10 out of 10 for your poker face, I have to say, <laughs> as you are watching that particular track, uh, or, or as I was watching you, I think listening to that particular track. Did you enjoy it, Brian? It's very well executed. It has all the hooks, all the great pop hooks. It gets all frisky in the right places. There's great hand claps. There's a great feel. It will do really well for in Vegas. It'll do really well for any live venue. In terms of, it, it's a collaboration with Oliver Heldens. They haven't met. They still haven't met. And this is my whole point about this album, that it's, it's, it's an Ikea type affair. It's like, you know, the melody arrived in this box and the middle eight arrived in this box and someone in the studio put them all together. Ah, but we music. all know how That's hard it is to put flat yeah. packs together no, no, in, no, in no. the right way. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm all for pop music, believe me. But what I'm saying is that on this album, I, when, when this album ended, I didn't know anything new about Kylie. Yeah. I just saw her. She, she's a commercial artist and she works out very well. This is designed to sell copies. There's no artistic merit in this whatsoever. However, as a pop music album, it works really well. But it depends. I mean, it, it depends what aesthetic are we using to touch this? I mean, that, we could okay. bring up, we could get into more ideology and philosophy about this. But as, as a pop music album, as I said, it's very well put together. Yeah, and it's at number one but, and she's celebrating that today. Stars, Brian, what, can you, are you, are you going to measure it simply as a pop album? Uh, as a, that's the thing. We can measure two ways. Add three overall. Three overall. And what are you saying, Andrea? Um, I don't think that pop music and artistic merit is um, our mutually exclusive. Um, it's three and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I fear there's a whole program in that there particular is, that particular same, topic. Yeah. However, we're we're in we're in similar categories in terms of stars. Three and three and a half out of five. We'll start agreeing now soon. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, no. <laughs> Next up, a band from Cleveland, Ohio. The National is back with Laugh Track, second album in in 2003, no less. Kind of companion piece to their first release of the year. First two pages of Frankenstein let's just play a track to, to, to get us started have I got yeah I have got the right thing up here let's play a track I think you um, yeah well, I think you like this one Brian but I could be wrong Weird <laughs> Goodbyes featuring Bonnie Vare. Goodbyes there from the National and their new album, Laugh Track. And Brian, yes, uh, this is the track that uh, seemingly spawned the rest of the of the album. Do you get something in this that suggests to you there was a second album uh, to due from the National after the two pages of Frankenstein, uh, the first two pages of Frankenstein early in the year? Not really, because you can't believe a word any band says in the press release for the new album. I mean, they're going to lie pathologically. It's what all artists do. The story they're giving <laughs> Although is... Although we be, is let's that, be clear that we are not saying that anybody in the not, National has lied about this album. No, we're just saying that they, what, they, what they're saying is that they had this album, they had the song for the last album yeah. and, and decided to hold it over. I don't know, it, it should have went from the last album because the last album wasn't that great. The, the, um, the National are, you know... the bespoke darlings of the cerebral liberal music listener. They are the most white, the most middle class band you could ever hope to hear in your life. The songwriting is incredible, which is why they are one of the best bands in the world. However, it just feels to me like they've become like a franchise. And it's not just them, it's Bonnie Iver, we just heard singing in there, and it's, yeah. it's Phoebe Bridgers. You've all these white middle class artists who are selling out global tours and multi-platinum sales 
And it's just this forlornness and this sadness. And I'm just wondering, like, it's almost become a parody of itself now. This album goes on and on and it's just him and, and it's elegant nihilism. And he has, he puts in this odd literary reference. And I just think that music critics who are all white middle class connect with that. Right, and okay. I just feel that. How did we get from Little Richard and Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show to this? I, how it, where, did you get that where, reference where, 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 in? I mean, I, what I there's, there's no a bop a loop, bop a boom to anything no, yeah. on this album. Yeah, well, let's, let's go to Andrea because it was a forlorn, I can't remember, nihilism, I think, was the phrase that, mm. that Brian used there. And your sigh when that song started was forlorn and quite definitely nihilistic I thought it's dour it's dour stuff and I mean yeah I, 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 I agree with Brian that you know they've nearly become a parody of themselves and they do that even in their merch I think they sell baseball caps that say like sad dad on it and look if the men are sad and they need their music that's absolutely fine by me but the thing about the national is they used to be a bit more than that even not not that long ago Sleep Well Beast mm. which came out at the the, oh, the end of the last decade I can't remember the, the year exactly but that was a fantastic album and it seemed to have purpose and propulsion and, and a reason but this I I don't know how many more times we can think oh. about the image of someone packing up their boxes because they're going through a divorce. Like, how many more yeah. times can we okay. do this? But you did you did pick out Coat on a Hook as being provocative. Provocative in a good way or a bad way? Coat on a Hook. Is, is, was that the Phoebe Bridgers one? Yes, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 like, I like that one a lot. And I like that they work with Phoebe on this. I know she is part of the kind of the sad liberal industrial complex, but I, <laughs> I, I like when, when, um, when he sings with a female singer, I feel like that, Something that, that interplay and, and it's not just yeah. because of the depth of his voice, but that interplay, it, it felt like there was actually another perspective okay. here and a bit of, a bit of brevity. Only going to be able to have time to play a little bit of Phoebe in the background. She does get a verse, I think, a bit later into that track, uh, Coat on a Hook, Phoebe Bridgers, along with The National. Um, uh, Andrea, quite positive about that track, Brian. Um, is it just another example of their formulaic? Uh, it inter- was earnest, it was sadness soaked, it was meaningful music with a capital M that music critics give them four out of five stars for just for just as a knee-jerk response. It's that elegant nihilism, that twee forlornness. They... My theory about the national is that when REM left the stage, they saw they they said, "Oh, there, there's an opening for us." <laughs> Here we and go. they and it's. The, but the, my problem is that with them is yeah. the music is stylized. I don't think it's that authentic. And right. for any listeners sort of listening, going, "No, oh, I like that first song Sean played." Listen to a band called Tindersticks from the nineties. It's where the national get a lot of their ideas. I think. All right, stars from you, Brian, on this Three. one. Three, Andrea. I th- I think there's some really. Nice <coughs> songs on this album, including the one we nice just heard. Nice is never a good word, mm, or it's it, often not a good word. Yeah, they are. They are nice mm. songs. Um, uh, but I, I mean, at its worst, it's it's really dour to the point of being unenjoyable. So it's two and a half stars for me. 
Kind of to the point of being unenjoyable. Yeah. Two and a half stars. Okay, that's the national and laugh track, the title of the <laughs> yeah. album. Let's move on to our final album, acclaimed American band, Wilco, uh, driving force in music industry, I suppose, for three decades, 30 years easily. So Cousin is their 13th studio release. And here is a track called Soldier Child. There we have Soldier Child from Wilco. How typical is that of this album, Cousin Brian? And how typical is that song of Wilco in general? Very typical. I mean, you remember that Wilco, when they were known as back as Uncle Tupelo in the 90s, they are they single-handedly are credited with inventing the genre we now know as alt-country. The only the only real... And now, over the last 20, 25 years, I mean, they've been going for 30 years. It's, it's very ageing when you think about it. Um, they have produced a lot of, I mean, they, they sort of went, oh, we're not a country band. We are a mm. country band and they've had this identity crisis. But they've consistently released um, fascinating albums over the last few years. This album is different in that they got in for the first time ever. They got, well, first time, in, as you were saying, in it, over a decade. Yeah, Kate LeBon. They got in Kate LeBon, this wonderful Welsh multi-instrumentalist. Yeah. And I'm d- delighted to know that she took her surname as a tribute to Simon Le Bon from Duran Duran. She's go. actually a great artist in her own right and apparently she had um, produced them, um, she had she'd covered them before and they loved to cover so much right. they got her into they got her in. Uh, has, has she brought them to new places or has she just taken their well, you know, very successful strategy and helped it along the way? Andrea? Oh no, she's, she's earned every penny she got for the, for, for working on this album. She re- She's all over she's it. She's brought she something really is, big yeah, to it, has she? Yeah, yeah. She's, she's brought a, a kind of a a kind of a sometimes a atmospheric kind of feeling, kind of hazy, and she just kind of brings them. She she takes what they do well, which is that kind of old country mm. sort of like format or style of a yeah, song. Yeah, but it's somehow, she, and I don't want to be reductive of old country. But she seems to have maybe it's her, maybe it's them. It seems to have moved beyond that. It, it has, it has moved beyond that. They're using uh, in in some of these songs much more interesting, like sometimes even like jazz chords. There's songs here that mm. never really feel like they like they resolve uh, harmonically. Like it's it's not. I mean, you wouldn't go into it. it, it uh, I don't want anyone to go into it expecting to be, you know, mind yeah. blown, like Dark Side of the Moon or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But but uh, if you're a Wilco fan, you'll really feel the difference between this and and their previous work. All right, um, stars from you first time this time, um, Andrea. Yeah, I think it's 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 an album that is best listened to all together. I think it's probably better than the sum of its parts in terms of the songs versus how it works as an album as a whole. So I'm going to give it three and a half stars. Three and a half stars. And Brian? It's, it's Wilco 2.0. It's just a bit of refurbishment and stuff. But no matter what, how they try and get all sort of avant-garde yeah. and electrical, there's still the pedal... The, the, the steel guitars, the steel oh, guitars right. are there, and the Amer- Americana guitar 
um, riffs are still there. It's wonderful. I loved it. Uh, four stars. Four stars for me. And I think you want a revision. I, I put you off your stride. You you said three for the national. very upset about this. But you, you really want to give them. I have the evidence. You know, like they do yeah, in Canada yeah. yes, where, yes. where they can show. Sean yeah. can we confirm. both confirmed it. It was two and a half yes, stars, I, which yes, is the same as exactly. has Two and a half he has written on his page. So <laughs> I accept that adjustment <laughs> to your star rating for the national. That is, uh, that is the, the Wilco Cousin, the National Laugh Track and Kylie Minogue Tension, the three albums that Andrea Cleary and Brian Boyd were speaking to us about this evening. That is our lot for this week. Leah uh, Murphy and Paula Shields researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Carol O'Hare was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. Uh, I will be back with you on Monday at 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 with you on Lyric on Sunday afternoon if you want to join me for that. John will be with you after the news.